felt like I was trained not to explore pleasure and not to feel pleasure or to be shamed to have pleasurable experiences that are erotic. And that really made it so that I didn't feel like I could be myself. And now I'm like, you know what, fuck you. I'm gonna be myself. I'm gonna work all the jobs and explore all of my talents in whatever way, shape, or form that I want to. And I'm going to do sex work. I'm gonna do whatever I feel that I need to do because I'm not a linear person. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Today I'm speaking with Z Royale, a writer, performance artist, sexual anarchist, social worker, and pleasure activist. Z writes and performs in adult films, creating what they call post-porn, in collaboration with Aorta Films. They also curate erotic events at venues like PS1 MoMA as part of the production team for Kink Out. Z studied psychology and sculpture at Sarah Lawrence and gender and development at the School for International Training in Kingston, Jamaica, before receiving their master's in social work from Columbia University. Z worked for 12 years in youth development and started the international nonprofit Unified for Global Healing, which develops grassroots community health and arts initiatives in Haiti, Ghana, and India. Combining their experiences in art, activism, and social work, Z was the Associate Director of Communications and Impact at the Center for Anti-Violence Education and is currently Director of Communications for the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center. Z, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad that we are finally able to make this conversation happen. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, I'm excited too. So I want to talk about all of your work from your artistic work, your social work, your activism, but maybe just to start off, you can give us uh, a little bit of sort of your history. I know that you were raised in a conservative Christian home in Tennessee, I think. You worked as a social worker. You left the States to make erotic art in Europe. Tell me a little bit about the journey and, and what the most pivotal moments were in your trajectory. Well, actually, I was born and I would like to talk about the fact that I am officially from Venus and crashed down into Dallas, Texas. <laughs> so I was, I lived the first part of my life in Dallas, Texas. Um, after I feel like coming from another planet, cause I definitely don't completely feel like I'm from this planet. Um, but thank you for that correction. Very important. Yes. <laughs> uh, growing up in Dallas is very repressive. Um, I grew up in a Trinidadian family that migrated to Dallas. Um, so it was just interesting growing up in a home that was all about Trinidadian culture, pretty much, but within a Texas um, confine. So I, I felt like I was embracing myself as a Black person, as a Trinidadian person, but definitely felt repressed as a queer person, as a person who is a sexual being and I was very reserved growing up there and I was just kind of like going about my life, um, living mostly in my subconscious world mm -hmm. and just developing stories in my head. And I even a lot of erotic stories from elementary school, I started to develop and even write about um, people in my classes and people I wanted to hook up even early on in life. And I don't know, I guess I always did that just for myself and never thought I could talk about it. So that's just a little bit of how I grew up in a very repressed culture. Um, but as I started to evolve into myself, 
um, and realize that it was okay to, for, to let my subconscious world come into the conscious world. Um, I started to um, develop my artistic talents more. I was told finally, I had an English teacher that told me I'm a writer after I got in trouble for writing erotica in class and passing it around for people to read. <laughs> Wow, what? I was gonna, okay, eighth grade. What? I started writing teen teen erotic stories because I didn't like Sweet Valley High and I didn't like what was that else was out there? Just this like Ramona and Beezus and like there's this like childhood like stories that were talking about sexuality like, in ways that I didn't connect to and also I didn't see any versions of myself in. And that started really young. So I started again living in my fantasy world and writing about it and Basically, my friends would read it and it was in a like trapper keeper binder that I would write these stories. And I think I still even have them in a trunk in my parents' storage. <laughs> but um, I really spent a lot of time in my own fantasy world. And it was very innocent. You know, it's like who's going to kiss who and then, you know, who's dating who kind of stories. But um, I realized even back then, looking back, that I was always just trying to create a life of my own within myself that I didn't feel like I can have outside in the external world. And then when I um, was told when I got in trouble in class for passing around these stories, the English teacher took the stories, read them, and then I was never, ever in trouble. So I was super nervous about having to meet with her about these stories. And I was like, oh, my God, my whole life is over. This is eighth grade. Um, if my mom knows that I'm writing this, she's going to, all the times I'm telling her I'm doing homework, I'm really writing erotica. <laughs> she's going to really like think differently of me and no, no longer be proud of me. And I just felt like I would be shamed, um, which is partially true. So, but the, but the teacher, like when she um, invited me to talk to her about it, she actually was telling me that I'm a writer and I should really think about writing more um, for professionally and thinking about as a career. And at that time, I was really wowed because I was like, oh, you like my writing? I thought I was just in trouble, you know, and I never thought of myself as a writer. Um, but then I also at the time was in dance and I started to dance with Dallas Black Dance Theater. And the combination of being a writer and a dancer really um, spoke to the fact that I needed to audition for an art school. So I ended up um, being a part of uh, Arts Magnet School in Dallas, which then catapulted me into being more of myself as a creative and also not be as ashamed of my sexuality because there are more people that were diverse within that school, especially for Dallas. Everybody's coming from different pockets. Um, Dallas County is huge <laughs> from different pockets that are artists and got into the school. Um, and I got in as a dancer. So being there really opened and broadened my horizons because I was never competitive. I never loved sports. And when I was growing up in school, I was put in all these sports because it was a pretty white private school I, I was in initially. And they just thought me being black meant that I needed to be in track and basketball and volleyball. Actually, I liked volleyball um, and just different sports. And I was like, I actually just don't like to compete. I just like to be creative. And I feel like everybody's an individual and I'm more interested in that. So, um, so that said, I felt like at, in high school, I was able to really blossom as who I am as an individual person, not just being black and queer, but also explore more of my gender queerness. Um, also explore like who I really wanted to date, which was not confined to people based on gender. Um, 
And again, at that time, I didn't realize I was still just being myself. You know, I didn't really label myself as much, but that really helped me start to realize I didn't want to live in Texas anymore and I can just go somewhere else and be even more who I am. So that made me apply for colleges in New York. <laughs> and actually not just New York, but I knew I would end up in New York because that at the time was the most diverse place I ever heard of. And I watched Flashdance and was so in love with also this idea of being a dancer, living in New York, even though that wasn't taking place in New York. I just saw myself as like, the flash dance, you know, star in New York and living in like this situation where I had my own warehouse and could live my own life the way I want. So that's what I was aiming for. <laughs> and that's what I ended up doing. I, I went to Sarah Lawrence College, basically got in because of my writing, because you have to write five essays. Um, I liked that Sarah Lawrence was already not um, asking me to be admitted based on my SAT scores, which were okay, but you know, that's not the kind of school I want to go to. I wanted to go to school where I could be experimental and explore and be an independent learner. Um, and that's where I really felt like I literally came into myself. I was really like, okay, now I can, and I was told I was a writer before, but now I'm gonna be writing a lot more um, and not just erotica. This, I wrote poetry, I wrote, I mean, everything was writing based. And it really helped me to develop my fantasy world and life more. So that's that's what really brought me to New York. And that's where I am still today. Mm -hmm. But then you you left New York. You had a big whole odyssey in Berlin and other parts of Europe, right? Yes. I think like the first chapter of the evolving into who I am was to come to New York and say, hey, that was the first like, oh, you know, I graduated from thinking I need to be a certain way to actually being who I am. And then um, living in New York, going, finishing school at Sarah Lawrence, um, I also just decided to continue on and get my master's of science and social work at Columbia University. And I did that because I had a professor who kind of guided me in that direction. And she was like, you're an artist, but you're also a social worker. Um, so maybe you can combine all your skills by going to get your master's in social work. And I followed her lead and she was a really great professor, Regina Arnold, who um, she passed away, but she, she actually taught a prime and deviance theory course where actually um, for the chorus, I did a right to write workshop in Valhalla Women's Prison as part of the course, this field work. And I was teaching writing as a coping mechanism and as a positive escape by going into the, this jail um, for six weeks, twice a week to teach. And that was so inspiring to me for many reasons. First of all, I, there were some women in the prison that were crushing on me and they were writing about me in the group, which I was interesting in a twisted way, excited. I mean, I, I'm actually not into Orange is the New Black at all. I'm not into that series and I'm not into like this kind of prison fantasy, but I did realize, like, again, I connected with the fact that so many of the women that were in that prison were repressed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the reasons why they were there were because of doing sex work, uh, because they actually protected themselves from abusers, um, because they might have fallen into addiction, illness, or, you know, things that were circumstantial that um, they could write about that were really healing for them. And then also made me feel connected to them too. Um, even if I didn't have those exact experiences. Um, it just made me also expand my own ideas of what people survive and have to, um, I guess, just get through to develop 
a path for themselves and to be who they are. And a lot of times it goes awry because our system is very oppressive in many ways. Um, and I felt oppressed too, every time I went to do these workshops. And so my goal from being inspired there was to do something like that within the social work sphere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, Going to Columbia was really about that. Um, I did a law minor. I was wanting to be a law guardian. And a lot of the um, field work I did was also artistic related because it wasn't art therapy, but I always used um, artistic techniques like writing, drawing, um, also even singing, just really tapping into people's talents for whoever I was connecting with um, as clients and, and really helping me also recognize the way that I um, was through sharing just with mm -hmm. them, connecting to myself, even closer to myself. Um, and so, yeah, then after grad school, the I don't know how much I want to go into this part of my personal life, but I did get married <laughs> to um, someone who ended up being, you know, who loved me for my independent self at first. It was also um, the first I mean, even though I dated whoever I wanted, all genders, um, it was, you know, I married a woman who I felt was a really powerful black doctor out there in the world that I was like, wow, you also respect the fact that I'm an individual, independent black queer person who is talented in many ways. And that ended up, you know, even if, you know, it was a, we got married, but it ended up being an abusive relationship. Um, and I felt like, although she really liked me initially, um, as an independent person, she also had an element of control that she really wanted to change me into basically being a doctor's wife, very, what I call homonormative situation, <laughs> um, wanting to have like maybe the doctor's wife, have the child, um, have children, have the dogs, picket fence kind of life. And that just was not me. And I, so I realized I need to pull myself out of also, again, this external construct of who someone thought I should be, similar to how I felt when I had to survive living in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and basically left her divorced and moved to Europe by myself to restart. So mm -hmm. I moved to Amsterdam um, right at the crux of writing an erotic novel um, called Appetite about uh, a contrasexual woman. I don't even know if people talk about contrasexuality anymore, but contrasexuality um, meaning that um, someone who is a woman who likes to have a sex life, but does not need to be in a relationship to have a sex life. So um, the book was about basically where I was on my journey at that time, wanting to evolve into, again, being a creative who also has a creative sex life, it was not as confined by a marriage, um, by moving and just doing more BDSM work and doing exploring my sexuality more by myself in Amsterdam. So that's what I did. I, um, for the first year, it was a very healing year. I lived off of um, my book money um, before the publishing company crashed and went bankrupt. <laughs> um, and... I was able to also, I was writing a sequel that I never put out, but um, also develop more fantasy stories based on my experiences that I was having. Mm -hmm. um, instead of feeling repressed by a relationship I was in that was controlling, I became more free again. Mm -hmm. So um, 
So yeah, living in Amsterdam was my first entrance into, again, living outside of many constructs, including just the whole U.S. construct. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, like living in the States is a very oppressive, capitalistic society that we all are brainwashed in because we all think that we need to do certain things to prove ourselves, whether it's credentials, whether it's like labeling, whether it's um, being certain types of relationships in certain circles, all of a sudden no one knew me. So I can just be me. <laughs> so um, I was a part of a queer anarchist punk group there. Um, and in that group, I actually was recruited to be a part of a play, which I was, it was so weird because they didn't know my acting skills or if I had any, but they were mm-hmm. like, we want you to be in this Valerie Solanas play called Up Your Ass. And I was like, what? And then I was like, what is this about? They're like, you're from New York. We need somebody from New York. I mean, I'm not Puerto Rican at all, (laughs) but I guess they thought I had enough of the New York accent. So I was like, you know, why not? Why not try this? And um, from being in that play, I just developed the community because, you know, you have to go to several rehearsals. I was the main character in the play, Bonji Perez. Ironically, even without knowing, (laughs) because I was just not really at that time calling myself a sex worker or actually being out as somebody who wants to be in the sex trades. I was playing a prostitute, a lesbian prostitute who was androgynous, who just used men for sex. That was your character. That was my character. <laughs> Bonji Perez, which is also Valerie Solanas's life. Um, well, and you started this by saying the contrasexuality, that was the mission you were on to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> and then that was what that book was on. So then it was kind of like funny that and then I got recruited for this play. Um, <laughs> and I guess what I can say about that is that I really was able to explore my sex life through connecting with people who are non-judgmental and that were in a pretty open queer scene. Um, also, Amsterdam is known for sex work. It's not actually at all sexy there, to be honest. I didn't experience it being sexy, <laughs> but I was like, oh, it's so. another job you can you can have. Um, and I met several people that were in this into sex work there. And yeah, it was just cool to have this community of people who you can openly talk about sex with that no one was shaming. And if anything, I learned more about the fact that every individual has different things that they like, different fetishes, and it just broadened my whole horizons about how to connect with people sexually. Um, and I started to run spank therapy workshops and do spank. We, we call it like, I, we had a party called a spank party. And all of a sudden the, the, it went from like spank, spank one to spank two to spank three. Like people kept wanting the same party to happen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, people are really into spanking. Like, are, maybe I'm really good at spanking. <laughs> so I, without knowing, just being somebody who's very has a very sensitive ass. And also I feel like I like being spanked. So it made me good at spanking. Um, so I started to connect with people beyond just this play by doing like spank, spank parties and then spank therapy. So what, yeah, speak about the therapy aspect. So initially just started off in my, you know, I guess I wouldn't call it a regular sex life, but in my sex life, like I often spanked people with consent. And um, I realized that when I spank people, it's also something that awakened their root chakra. And I guess I also agree with that for myself. It's like when you have more vibration in this part, in your root chakra, whether it's spanking or otherwise, um, then 
you can be more erotically stimulated um, because you're not as closed off in your root chakra area. So it doesn't even have to be like you are into penetrative sex. It's just that people start to feel this vibration through spanking that actually, um, depending on the buildup and everything, really gets people drawn into wanting more. So I liked this um, feeling and I like that people can connect through spanking. So I kind of conducted spank dating for these parties and people literally would meet through spanking. <laughs> and I would teach people how to, of course, like go about the process, including consent and um, different ways of spanking using different tools. Um, and then people just ask me privately, can you spank me? So I started spanking people. Um, and getting paid for it. And I didn't even initially ask to be paid for it, but people are like, thank you for spanking me and paid me. Because also like this in Amsterdam, people do see, like if you spend any energy that's sexual and, and that somebody asks you to do, and it's not based on a relationship, mm -hmm. um, people feel like, oh, I should offer you money. Hmm. So that's how I actually originally start to realize, oh, this is sex work. This is a version of sex work that I didn't really think about. Mm. Um, meanwhile, things, um, as things went on, Amsterdam became really expensive. And I also felt like I actually needed more sexiness, not just sex work in my life. And I started to think about also the things like going from the fantasies I used to write early on in my life, I started to realize I want to create fantasies and reality. And I started to think about scenarios I could create on film, but I would write them first, more like as a story, short story. And then um, when I started to go to Berlin just to visit, and actually I did some poetry readings there, just raw, cold readings of my erotic poetry, um, which I've always done, by the way, I've always just done all types of writing. <laughs> um, I um, was asked to come and stay in Berlin. Like uh, I literally met another writer at a bar who said, hey, I'm going to Fran San Francisco for six months and I need somebody to sublet my apartment. Would you like to sublet my apartment for 400 euros a month versus the 750 I was paying in Amsterdam? I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and I just migrated over. And um, that's when I was asked to take some of my writing and develop film with it. Um, and I started to work with people on film, like Neurosex Pornoia was the first film I worked on, which is very experimental porn. I mean, it's really about what is the future of fucking. And this is also, at that time, I was feeling very androtic, meaning like I was still very, I liked having sex. I liked having sexual connections, but I didn't, I felt very robotic when it comes to the way I was emotionally connecting with people because I wasn't just not open yeah, now I look back, I was just like in my healing process, I just wasn't open to being in um, having deeper emotional connections at that time. So that's why sex work was easier. And that's why doing porn was easier to maintain some stimuli without feeling like I'm being bogged down by emotional connection at that time. Right. Um, so it kind of fit where I was at to do this neurosex pornoia film because it was about like the main character. Actually, ironically, they were just going to use my flat um, and pay the rent for me to um, that month for me to, to, to use the flat to do the filming of this, the first neurosex pornoia movie. Um, and they wanted to use my 
like some voiceovers and ideas around what I've talked to them about around sex and sexuality and androidism. Mm -hmm. But then the person that was supposed to film didn't show up, the main character, and I was there. And they looked at me because everything was already set up. And I was like, what are you going to do now? And they're like, well, what do you think about doing this? (laughs) And I was like, I already worked on it. So I guess I could be the main character. So (laughs) similar to like how I fell into this play in Amsterdam, I fell into porn. Um, Literally, yeah. And so I ended up doing the filming for Neurosex One. And then there was a two and three. And I worked on those as well. well, Neurosex 1, actually, I was not in. Neurosex 2 was like a, a version coming from Neurosex 1 into um, this whole idea of what is the future of fucking going to be like. And, you know, the whole um, premise is that, you know, people are becoming sexually bored. Um, people are not making connections, which ironically is very similar to this pandemic right now mm-hmm. um, because of social distancing or because people are just having a hard time connecting emotionally in general in society. And so instead of Tinder and Grindr, people are going to start downloading um, uh, neuro codes into their brain in order to make their sexual fantasies come true. So basically the way it would happen is there would be a transmission from the computer into the brain that would then create the sex life that you want. (laughs) Wow, that you just, that is just... exist in your mind essentially that you're not even having a somatic experience of no no but you're because your neurotransmitters are being stimulated uh-huh. in exactly the way you want because you downloaded your fantasy then it just is coming true without any physical stimulation wow the the problem was that people are dying of orgasms because there was like a bad batch of neurocodes neurosex codes <laughs> being put out there by a mad scientist and it was up to me to find out who that was so that's where it became the neurosex two and then three. <laughs> a heroic task. Yes. Very awesome uh, movies. And I'm still, I'm super excited that I kind of started out that way because a lot of, I don't think I mentioned this, but a lot of what I realized even in living in Amsterdam was that the reason why I was not stimulated by a lot of what I was seeing out in the porn industry or in, you know, the sex trades in general, what, based on what I was exposed to, I didn't see anybody that was like me. I didn't see any that was black and weird and genderqueer. And so I decided I was going to be that person that mm-hmm. I wanted to see mm-hmm. and then continue to do porn there. Um, but I also continued to write. And then I also did performance art. So I worked with Pornceptual, which is a party there um, that was basically a fetish-based party. And, you know, there's a lot of sex-positive environments in Berlin. There's a dark room everywhere. You can pretty much hook up anywhere. It doesn't have to be that you're a sex worker. But if you are a sex worker, it's also very easy. <laughs> um, and then the sexual performance was that I was able to do things like I did this neurosex chamber uh, that I created in a bunker space because also I love to do sculpture installation. So I just made like an electronic graveyard in a bunker space sprayed some black light paint on it and then put black light in there and a white chair and people came into my chamber and they got mind fucked um for example and of course there was like a little triage first where i asked what their boundaries were what they liked what they didn't like um can i strap them to this chair how um and then i blindfold them put headphones on them and have them listen to my mind fucking poetry 
<laughs> While you are engaging with them in some way? Well, I was teasing them based on whatever the, the actual triage mm-hmm. said. If it said that I can tease them with the, with, I had these electronic tools that I would tease them with. I also had floggers. I just had different ways that I could play with them that I use. Um, that were exciting for me because I like to see people um, feel pleased. Mm-hmm. It's really, I don't, I don't have to have sex with the person for me to also transfer erotic energy. So I found that that was something that's really progressive that I love to do. And it's also interesting being an erotic performer, whether it's porn or live erotic performance, because I could eroticize a room of people without having to touch them or have sex. <laughs> right. So that was different than, and it's also very safe in many ways. It's emotionally safe. It's also like safe because you don't have to exchange any fluids. Um, It was also safe because people talked about, we already talked about consent and boundaries from the get-go, which is what I also value about sex work. I feel like there was a lot of feelings that I had growing up that, oh, sex work is... um, people just do sex work if they're needing to survive or if they needed to, um, or if they're just doing street work or if they're addicted. I mean, there's just a certain image of sex workers that I grew up mm-hmm. seeing in the media. Um, and then realizing actually no sex work or sex, the sex trades is a whole career field. It's not so limited as I thought. And so let me explore this more. And a creative field in your case, it seems. Yeah, actually, I was able to use, and I still am able to use a lot of my creative energy in erotic ways that are very pleasing for me. And I like to continue to do. It's not something, it is a choice. And it's something that um, I didn't want to stop doing. Um, But moving back to the States was challenging. Wow. I mean, you just shared so much that I have so many questions. questions about and what a what a remarkable journey thank you for going into it I before I before we get back to you moving back to the states I'm first just want to touch a little bit on neurosex because I think when I was looking into it uh somewhere I read this idea of post porn where the intention isn't actually to arouse the audience but it's this sexually explicit material and I think that's very interesting because most when we think of porn right we think of it as being very has it has a specific function so I'm curious yeah if you can talk about this idea of of pornography that's not necessarily meant to arouse. Yeah, it's funny because also that really turned me on about, I was like, what is post-porn? And then we, then I just thought about in academia, how everything, like when people put post in front of something, it kind of right. like means, like basically it's like porn after porn. <laughs> right. So I guess the idea though... Porn. Yeah, the idea was to rid of what our formal initial ideas were of porn, which for me were just like, for lack of, yeah, I'm not going to even try to be politically correct about it. It was just like blonde bimbos online with, with boob jobs. Um, realizing that actually that's not it for porn. And also there's nothing wrong with porn in itself. It's just, you know, the images that people put out there can sometimes be very degrading. Um, specifically for Black people, because there was not a lot of 
like and I would go to the porn section of any place and even on Pornhub, it'd be like the same shit, black ass, black dick. And it only and it just felt like going right back to the Venus hot and tot theory mm-hmm. of like black people being animals that were only like were like having sex like dogs or something and not and being exoticized in a way that is not you know, also exoticism being something I did experience more in Europe, to be honest, but being exoticized in ways Mm. that were not, of course, respectful of who we are as sexual beings. Um, So I feel like this post-porn was about also even the people I work with were genderqueer and trans. So they were like, hey, um, what do you want to show on screen? What are your boundaries? What is what creative angles do you want to take? So for me, it was really about empowerment and for me to show who I was as a sexual person and am also um, without it having to look sexy. Mm-hmm. Then this idea of like, is this sexy? Is this sexy? You know, like there's the societal sexy and then there's who you are as a sexual being mm-hmm. <laughs> and being and digging deeper into who I am as a sexual being was also, again, there was another chapter of that in Berlin in the sense that I realized, oh, I actually just like exhibitionism. I like when people are eroticized by weird shit <laughs> that I'm doing that I didn't even think was sexy, maybe. You know, I didn't even have to think about whether that was sexy or not. And then people would tell me and I'd be like, oh, I'm so glad. It's like getting feedback on your art. It's like, you know, people have, they can look at the same piece and all have, um, different angles or different perspectives about your work and what you do. I felt that post porn is more about that. It wasn't trying to control what turns people on. It's about showing what you feel you want to show as a sexual person to an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was the opposite of what I was normally used to. Um, And I'm really like, I feel like that was a very progressive way for me to see myself um, in erotic work. And even when I still watch films that I'm in, going back to neurosex pornoia, I see myself as a separate person. It's like an out-of-body experience. It's not like, oh, look at me. It's more like, oh, look at me in this role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or look at this aspect of myself that I didn't actually even know. Because I know, you know, when people are having sex, unless they always record themselves, they don't really know what they look like. They don't really know what they're doing uh, right. all the time. But then when you can do yourself, when you're very open and free and putting yourself out there the way you want exactly, then you can view yourself in a different light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also realize it's based on connectivity and many other things too. Connectivity in terms of with with the people that you're, well, with your audiences and with the people that you're performing with. Yeah, so the people I was performing with, um, who I also got to choose, um, I already would have, like, well, definitely Lena, who um, I was in Neurosex 3 with, was the first time I actually, because Neurosex 2 is more masturbatory, and then Neurosex 3 was connecting to a person Mm -hmm. um, through the film. And um, we had a play date. Well, first of all, we met, and then we had a play date. (laughs) Actually, no, I chose her from a group. of a lineup of people like who auditioned or or they didn't really audition they sent me like a only fans type of site for uh-huh. different people that wanted to play my co-star got and it. I got to choose and um I chose Lena and um then I asked Lena if she wanted to play beforehand so we can just see like what kind of things like really talk about boundaries but also see what kind of connectivity we can naturally um explore 
and we just had a natural connection and we had fun playing and that made the film even more exciting. Um, and yeah, it was just good to see our connection on film because we hadn't had a relationship outside of film. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about sort of the the protocol or the measures that you take on a film set to ensure safety and comfort and also in terms of even your creative process with your collaborators? Yeah. So this is also what taught me a lot about how I like to connect with people in life. Um, I like one thing I do like about um, being in a kinkster and sex positive sex work community, um, all of them that I've been in, um, is that consent and boundaries are, are in safety are talked about from the get-go. So there's never a wondering if are like, Ooh, I already did that. And I'm not sure kind of vibe. So you can even be more sexual, sexually exploratory and open in ways that I don't feel like you can in regular dating life. And I say, quote unquote, because some people are also people that talk about these things up front, but a lot of people, at least in my experience in the States had not. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I learned a lot through being in that industry because of that. And then it really informs my creative process because then you have to be more creative too. When somebody says, I don't do this, but I do that, (laughs) um, like no penetration, but yes to biting or, um, please um, don't fuck me in my crevice or like, even what do you want to be? What do you want your parts to be called? Is another part of it. You know, Mm. it makes as a creative writer, I can talk also about different body parts in many different ways. It doesn't have to be the typical like ass and pussy and dick and, you know, penis or whatever. Um, It can be crevice. It can be stick shift. It can be joystick. It can be, um, caboose (laughs) (laughs) I don't know like think of many (laughs) different ways to to get creative with the way that you are connecting with somebody um through film creatively but then also informs my personal life so I feel like yes it's still different but um it's because I'm already doing this in practice it doesn't feel so foreign and weird Mm. So you've spoken about representation a few times in the porn industry and in some of the BDSM scenes that you were exposed to in Amsterdam and Berlin. So, uh, and I want to reference and then talk more about this fantastic article you wrote for Lestry called Fucking the System. And in this article, you you wrote about how you wish that you were seeing more Black bodies in kink and BDSM spaces. And... Um, and you said, I wonder how my fellow black BDSMers felt in predominantly white circumstances. And I just thought how I would feel if I was being bound by a white Russian guy who I trusted to suspend me upside down and submerge my head into a bucket of water, for example. I couldn't see a black person being in that position without experiencing trauma. And so I'm curious first just to know a little bit more about what that experience was within those scenes and like why you think, because I certainly see why that power play would feel dangerous in a white space. But you spoke about also then finding um, like the black BDSM scene and how that felt kind of small and incestuous and not satisfying in its own way. So what, why do you think that those spaces aren't more robust? And I know that you continue to do work to make this work more accessible to more diverse communities. So uh, I'd just love for you to speak about, you know, what, what you're finding in terms of who chooses to participate and what your own experience of that, those, that participation has been. 
I think it has to do, it's very historical because even if it's not in the States, it's in the world, unfortunately, um, slavery, especially black slavery is something that has run rampant and everyone is still affected by today. So I feel like in scenes, well, I was able to see more black media summers in Berlin per se than still in, in New York. There are scenes, but I'm still learning about those. So I'll just speak about the Berlin scene. I do think that because there are not a lot of black people in general, it's not a lot of black diversity within Berlin proper, even though it's like the New York of Germany, it still um, made the circle so small that it was just, I'm not into the incestuous vibe. I don't like gossipy, like drama within communities. And I'm not saying that it was that way because it was a black community. Even I just think that no, just it's, it's just a smaller small. community right. um, and not a lot of us. Um, but then it seemed also like for me to be more experimental and exploratory to like um, the reason why white European communities were more open is because they didn't experience this type of oppression. Um, they, from the get go that might even have grown up in more sex positive households <laughs> Um, there's less sex shaming and not in all circumstances, but in a lot of them, based on the people I've talked to, they were like, oh yeah, I could talk to my parents about sex or that's just a natural thing. We're all naked in the house or, you know, these kind of vibes. And I never had that. <laughs> not at all. I was mm -hmm. always told from the get go, like, you know, to, to never show my body that slutty. If you even wear short shorts and, you know, just things that I found were again, oppressive and based on the view again, like what I was talking about, the Venus hot and tot and just being mm -hmm. seen as a black bitch per se, not in a positive way, but somebody who was just hypersexual. Um, and whatever that means, hyper. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I didn't feel like we are like me as a black person was able to fully explore until I could be in circumstances or place myself in circumstances where I could feel comfortable. And even in some of these white circumstances, no, I didn't always feel comfortable. So I wouldn't do anything like at play parties. If I was the only one, most likely I would just be a little bit more observant or voyeur in that situation where when I went to like a black play party, I might be like that as well, just because I might've seen somebody who I mentor or, <laughs> <laughs> or might just not feel comfortable because that person dated that person and I didn't know how they were feeling in space together, you know, smaller, mm -hmm. commu tighter communities versus larger, more mm -hmm. dynamic European communities that could branch out to even different types of kink, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I do think it has to do with just another level of oppression. Like we're told that, you know, we're, we're already seen in a negative light um, as based on slavery and being demeaned and degraded um, to this day. And then on top of that, working within BDSM work sometimes has to do with power dynamics. And it's not easy to be in an oppressive power dynamic where like, for instance, somebody in that situation, I was really talking about Rome Bondage Week, which I was invited to do bondage with chains. Um, as the only black bondage worker. Um, and I was invited by um, someone who is black, uh, African actually from Sierra Leone and then also Italian, grew up in Italy. Um, and Brita, who's an amazing person, she invited me to um, do the bondage work with her being my victim. 
And um, we were the only ones in the whole conference. And this is people from all over the world <laughs> mm-hmm. going to Black Box for Rome Bondage Week. And I was able to see so many different types of bondage techniques with different dynamics, mostly with someone being, of course, the, the dom and sub or, you know, the there's always like people who are called bunnies, who are the people being bonded, um, being tortured or whatever. Um, but they're mostly white. So then there was not this dynamic of a, a black and white person um, in any situation. Um, so, and also me and Ambrito were both black. So that was actually more safe for both of us. Um, although Ambrita was often in circumstances where she was the only black person in these scenes. So I did, ex- I did see that and how that affected her. So this was progressive for us to be there, but mm-hmm. then watching also was like, Oh my God, like this person's head is being immersed. And I mean, I know that that's also a fetish. People like to be drowned. I actually, I did that in, in most more recent porn. I drowned someone cause they wanted me to. Um, but that dynamic was also different because it's like me drowning somebody who's white identified. <laughs> so that's, you know, that still didn't become like this weird race play. Although race play is, by, by the way, something I'm learning that people do also do, or they do play with these dynamics of master slave through race play, which that's, you know, I guess, you know, people explore their trauma in that way. But it's something that I am not keen on doing because I don't like to explore hierarchical dynamics to that extreme in any situation. I'm actually doing um, a workshop this weekend on switching it up and how to play with power dynamics. You don't have to just be in one role. <laughs> you can also challenge someone. Um, but yeah, in that circumstance, I was really addressing the fact that I was like, okay, even if I want to be dominated, it wouldn't be by you. <laughs> right. I don't feel safe with someone white dominating me because I'm already feeling like that's how I grew up. Yeah. So that's, um, I wouldn't get off on that. Of course. But, and then, but, and then do you think that the inverse situation as you were saying that some people are pl- are exploring these as ways to explore trauma, do you think that there is like potential for interracial healing through the subverted power dynamic? I actually didn't think of it that way initially, but because I have done more humiliation and um, initially when I was exploring doing bondage on people, were, they were white. Um, I did get a lot of satisfaction from that. But now I can now I think back, especially the humiliation. I think I got a lot of satisfaction from being able to humiliate someone who was white because um, they wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did find it easier to humiliate them because they're white versus somebody black. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't find like we are already humiliated so much that there's just more triggers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So even though I'm not so sure the healing aspect of that, and I have to really think about that for myself, but I'm like, was it easier because it's healing? No, mm-hmm. I think it was also just easier because this person's fetish was really in, they were really about humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that can be tricky too, because there is a fine line um, when you're dealing with, with people who want to be humiliated or they want to be bruised or they want to be injured in some way, shape or form. Sometimes there's the fine line based on their own trauma um, because I also was in a circumstance where somebody told me I didn't bruise them enough and I wasn't hard enough with them. And then that made me feel really weird in my position because I felt like if I become harder and I try to bruise you more, then that's not coming from a love space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's coming from a, 
ego space. And I don't want to come from that space because that's what you feel like you need because you're because of your past trauma. Mm. So I did also see the difference in that. And I think that has to do with people like and not just cultural and gender dynamics. It has to also do with some psychological aspects of how people want to be treated. Right. You've written about the sort of gestalt therapy element of BDSM and how in some circumstances going deeper into this inner trauma can really bring you closer together. So I'm curious about that work and and what you can share about maybe your positive experiences. Yeah. So then there's also like, especially through spanking, because I find that that's been consistently positive. Um, um, People have cried. And in a good way, um, because they felt like there was something newly released inside of them because of the way that I spanked. And a lot of it, again, has to do with care and, and build up. And also, yeah, even with humiliation, I would say this is true, too. This is what I realized. There's just a reverse psychology to it. So sometimes, like, the, the more you get to know somebody and, like, let's say there's the buildup of you becoming harder or knowing how to spank somebody or treat them in a certain way that they really want that's more intense it's because I got to know them and I got to know their bodies and I got to know what they like um so it requires paying special attention and so that pain can turn that's where pain turns into pleasure it's like the more painful the more pleasurable because you're actually showing more love and more desire through the intensity Mm. Versus I'm going to spank you out of punishment. And that's what a lot of people like. Also, that trauma is specifically in black communities is very real. Like spanking is also very specific for people like (laughs) I have a spank date tonight. And the person that um, I'm spanking is basically like, actually, I've had a very hard experience growing up being uh, with corporal punishment with my parents spanking me because I'm bad all the time. And even when I wanted love, they would push me away and spank me. And so I'm developing a new relationship to meet myself and my body and not feeling as disassociated through mm. caring through spanking. So it, you know, it's kind of like taking ownership of, of their own pleasure again, <laughs> without it being related to discipline and um, power and control. Well, it's really interesting because it, it feels like they're taking ownership of the trigger itself, right? Because mm-hmm. the another another way and perhaps what would be perceived as like a rational way to process would be, no, I don't want to be spanked because it has this association. Like, let me have soft pleasure and, right. you know, give myself that. And so it's very interesting that they're actually seeking out this therapy to confront and I guess heal that um, stimulus or the, their response to that stimulus directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You- That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, cause uh, that is really what it is. It's like healing from the trigger. Mm. And d- does in your sessions, are you speaking about that family upbringing at all? Or is it purely just about the physical action? Like what, what is the oh. actual session? take place like if there's if it's just a bdsm contract and it's not another relationship being built around it then the contract has i have a a actual form that people fill out where the contract goes through um first of all a check off of all the things like are they into knives are they into spanking are they into um bondage and if it's even bondage going into detail about what about arms being tied, legs being tied, neck, things like parts of the body. And then also I do ask about besides testing, I also ask about trauma 
Mm-hmm. Um, I ask about what words are triggering that they definitely don't want, which words do they want? Um, I go into a lot of detail and then we both sign off on the contract and then we revisit it every time. Mm-hmm. Every session, you mean? Mm-hmm. Every session. Mm-hmm. Because that can change also. Of course. Um, and I never take for granted that, oh, this person wants this the same thing, that, the same way they had it last time. How do you think your background in social work perhaps um, equips you to be uh, a guide or a healer and a sex worker in these ways? A lot. Um, yeah. I think I've just always naturally had the inclination as an empath, but I think like in school, learning more about boundaries, um, also learning about you know, abuse patterns like power and control wheel and um, what not to do. (laughs) Um, And also really, to be honest, the thing I don't think people ever do enough is ask questions. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like it is okay all the time to ask. You don't ever, you know, you shouldn't ever assume that um, what you're doing to or with somebody is something that they want. Mm -hmm. At any time, you can always, and I also say that, of course, safe words are always very primary um, in any of the work that I'm doing. And I do also, not just safe word, but I also check in. Mm -hmm. So that shows a certain amount of care. And and really, um, I I feel like I also think of it in a social worky way when it comes to like the beginning, middle and end of a session, because the beginning, you know, is asking questions, asking how they're doing, also going over anything that in the contract that I might need to just make sure of based on the session. And, um, and then the middle is the session, like getting into the meat of it, checking in though, not being like, I'm just going to go at you spanking you for an hour and not say anything <laughs> and not ask anything. Um, and then in um, aftercare and checking in and also asking how they're feeling. Um, is there anything that they need from me? Um, sometimes people are just like, I don't need anything from you. I just want my space now. And sometimes people are like, I want to cuddle. Um, sometimes people are like, can you rub me down with this oil? Mm-hmm. Um, can we smoke a joint? <laughs> and these can are- we watch something? If it's, if it's more personal, it's like, can we watch something funny? Yeah. Well, that that was going to be my question. Like, are, are you describing, I mean, I think that the protocol is probably the same, but it, it sounds like some of, some of these are paid sessions wherein you are being hired. And then of course, then there's your own personal. Um, so I guess even within, and as you're speaking, I'm just thinking also about the, the empowerment in a weird way to be the person coming to you and, and, and paying you, like there's a power in I'm paying and I'm going to ask for exactly what I need. And and receive that. Um, so in, in these, yeah, in these scenarios, I guess I'm curious, like, what are your, what, how, how does it change for you as the administer? I don't that's a weird word for this, you know, just some of your basic admin work. Um, <laughs> when it's, when it's somebody who is a client versus somebody who you are, are involved with where it's more personal. So when I have a personal involvement, there are, especially now I've evolved past the contrasexuality. Well, I wouldn't say past, like, I guess I just, you know, I went and I'm in a different phase of my life when it comes mm-hmm. to my connections. Um, I definitely want to make sure we're emotionally, first of all, doing well, because if we're not, I'm not going to do anything BDSM related. So that's mm-hmm. a major difference. Like, 
with somebody I'm contracted with, it might just, we already just set up the time and the date and we do it. And by the way, it's not always money-based. It's also bartering. Sometimes like I'm going to get my hair cut and then spank them. (laughs) Bartering. Great. We both get care. Yes. Um, But, you know, there's times that I will be transparent about this. Like sometimes like I'll, I've been challenged by being with somebody romantically that want that then feels like they know that do BDSM work and they like it sometimes, sometimes they don't. Um, but then they're like, well, why don't you do that to me? And I'm like, well, because we just had an argument, <laughs> you know, like, right. So there are times that I'm also completely not able to do this in my personal life because I feel like if we're not in that space, we're just not in that space. I have to have no, anger and no sadness there for me to be actively doing some things that are BDSM related. And those times I just need other types of intimacy that are not, that are building back up to us maybe being able to do that. And then some of our connections, we just don't do anything BDSM related, which is also fine. But yeah, there is a major difference for me when it comes to intimate connectivity versus like BDSM contracting. Right. Of course. I mean, you've spoken a lot about this already. And in some ways, it's a bad question because there's not there shouldn't be a uniform answer to it. But I'm just I would love to hear a little more like what do you think overall is what draws people to BDSM and what drew you initially when you found your way to that world? I feel like people are looking and including myself for other creative ways to explore eroticism that are not based on penetrative sex or missionary sex or reproductive sex. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like when you can explore other senses and in, including like sensory deprivation, you can heighten other aspects of connecting with somebody and also sometimes just yourself. Um, when you're not relying on just what you were initially taught in life was sex, you know, sex education. It was very dry, um, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so I feel like the exploration is something that comes into play with BDSM and just people wanting to also constantly spark up their sex lives. Like, so, you know, people might be in different relationship constructs and I'm, I'm never judgmental about any of them, you know, like monogamy, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, all of it, you know, still has to do with connectivity and how you connect. And I do find that um, one thing that's been interesting, because I also write, I'm writing a now a text. It's, a, it's like going to be a longer text, but it's called The Chronicles of Non-Monogamy. And one thing I'm writing about is the fact that sometimes there's this non-monogamy or polyamorous trend versus like doing the real work in a relationship. <laughs> like, cause right. every similar to a monogamous relationship, which is also never perfect or whatever, is nothing, no such thing as perfect, a perfect relationship or a cookie cutter relationship. Um, you do need to take the time to build and connect and uh, be empathic and sensitive and, you know, also negotiate sometimes how you want to be in space together, all these things. I find that sometimes people um, get bored with the monotony (laughs) of whatever they're doing. And then they want to say, oh, now I'm non-monogamous or now I'm going to do this. But it's like it doesn't have to be about the structure of relationships, because I think that connectivity can come in many shapes and form formats. And like some people I might have just primarily like 
only a BDSM connection with and I don't have any emotional connection with them. And that's just how it's going to be, even if it's not sex work. Um, and others, I have a really strong intellectual connection. So we can do sapiosexual activities, role play, and, you know, parent teacher conference role play. <laughs> is that is that what you're calling a sapiosexual activity? Uh, kind of, yeah, I like to do stuff because I love vocab. I like when people write on chalkboards. I like when people <laughs> do presentations. Actually, we have this, we had um, in our last leather social, we had some a, a sub do a whole like science fair presentation on edging. They have a chart that they... <laughs> <laughs> that they they um formed from the that their dom asked them to to create and then present to all of us about the times how long it took for them to to reach certain edges and then what happens when they're at the point of orgasm so anyway there's just some <laughs> intellectualizing of sex that i think is really creative and fun as well mm-hmm. um but that's a different connection um i find that there's things that are like a really bdsm has to do with play in general just yeah. breaking breaking out side of your normal typical ways of connecting and trying to figure out other ways to connect um and you know some people like to say oh I'm just vanilla which I don't actually understand what that means just like I don't understand what straight really means I mean there's just some terminology that I'm like okay but does that mean like you never waver from this or you don't ever evolve or what does that really mean (laughs) Right. I like I end up exploring with some people that thought that they only like one thing and they actually they also have other things they like, mm-hmm. you know, um, maybe they didn't realize that before um, they weren't feeling comfortable or open. So I think that the comfort openness also like we talked about um, trauma. Trauma is a big part of like people trying to break out of the typical confines of sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're like, that didn't work for me. I was traumatized by that. So what else can I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess across the board. Positive is just, yeah, creativity, exploration, openness, um, self-discovery. I think mm-hmm. already for me in the beginning of, of my own exploration, it all has to do with my own personal self-discovery, not about other people. Because I really got, you know, get tired of just pleasing other people. Like, what do you, <laughs> like, what are you, what are you getting out of it? Like, what do you want? And mm-hmm. Also, in exploration, there's some things I know I don't want, you know, like I don't want to be like um, dunked in a a pail of water and drowned. And that's especially not not by it. That's not me. (laughs) (laughs) That's not me. Yeah, that's just not for me. But I'm not going to judge you as long as you look like you're okay and that you're saying you're okay. Right. Although that can be tricky, too. But I don't know. You know, it's just one of those things. Yeah, I think overall it's this that there's agency in just ex- in exploring. And okay, I recognize I've been handed some script and that I until I consciously step out of that script and start to explore in some ways I'll continue to feel oppressed by it. Right. And exactly. That it's, you know, I know my own exploration was just oh, there's like a whole vast world because I think I think maybe when you're coming from the mainstream, you all you think you're like, oh, that BDSM just like, whoa, leather whip, like leather and whips and like dungeons. Right. Like, well, I don't think that's what I'm in. Like, no. Right. And um, when it's just such a and it's great if you are into that. Right. But that, that it's, mm-hmm. it's so much more than that. Like it's this whole vast world of just subtle, subtle dynamics that you can explore. And I think that um just thinking about what the what the representation is within mainstream consciousness of BDSM, yeah. that it has this very limited um, 
it's very limited, I think, in what it purports to be or what it what it exists as in people's mind. So, yeah. And that's why I think there's going to be probably new terminology that people start to use outside of that, too. I mean, some people just say I like to play. They don't like to use BDSM. Right. Um, just like people like to make sure they're not just in an S&M relationship, which is very hierarchical. Right. Um, so I do feel like there can be better terminology, too. Like you know, there's can always be new ways to talk about how to connect with others through play that's not necessarily even called BDSM. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you to fuck the system through pleasure? I feel like we're, um, well, I, like I was saying in my story, I felt like I was trained not to explore pleasure and not to feel pleasure or to be shamed to have pleasureful experiences that are erotic. And that really made it so that I didn't, feel like I could be myself. And now I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to work all the jobs and explore all of my talents in whatever way, shape, or form that I want to. And I'm going to do sex work. I'm going to do whatever I feel that I need to do because I'm not a linear person. Um, And there's so many things that oppress us in our lives. So it's like, I do feel like it's not just the system. It's our family. Sometimes it's our, it's, uh, it's our partners. It's, you know, there's so many mental prisons that we need to break out of in order to fully experience pleasure. Um, I'll also say like some of my explorations with like um, hallucinogens or like situations where I also had music festival experiences where I was able to explore like, oh, I can, I'm really not thinking at all in the same construct that I've been born in. I can actually be open and play more. And this is so awesome. Oh, you know, I am open to orgies in some sense that I didn't think I was before, depending on the group. Like there's just things that I feel like um, still have to do with power and control and societal um, and population control that we still always struggle with that we have to break out of um, in order to really experience living our lives. Mm. And it's not based on anybody else. I always think about too, all the layers I keep trying to peel off of myself from that have built up over time just to protect myself (laughs) from societal pressures. Um, And I keep peeling those off, those layers of skin off and like regenerating. And realizing, like, I literally feel like the more I do that, the more ageless I feel, the more Mm -hmm. excited I can be about life. Um, I know I don't have to stay, like, even though it's very, it does bog me down to be in this political system, especially with all the things that have been going on. But having had the privilege of being outside the system, I know this is not it. I don't have to let this bog me down. Mm -hmm. Um, I can also explore, like, after the pandemic or even within the pandemic, like how I can remove myself from constructs that are making me feel depressed Mm -hmm. and oppressed and repressed. So I feel like that's what fucking the system's about. And it's just about like really getting back to your roots all the time. Um, For me personally, it's like being my own primary and understanding what I need at all Mm -hmm. times and not based on what other people think I should need. Mm -hmm. or what I should want versus what I really want, (laughs) you know, in life. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really beautiful and powerful. 
Just to, before we close, I just love for you to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing uh, with the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center, your work with Kink Out at PS1, uh, anything that you can share about how you're bringing all of this into the world. So coming back to the States was really hard um, after seven years being outside the States, but I also missed my family. I also missed diversity. And I was like, okay, I have to come back. But how am I going to come back as the person that I've evolved into and not feel like I'm closing off again? Um, so one thing that I have done is really just try to manifest more instead of allow external factors to control me. So one of the things I manifested was, OK, what did I miss about living in Europe? I miss having an open sexual life and communities. And also I missed being able to just be a black weirdo in my own right. Like just do the things I like to do and not feel like, oh, I should do what people expect me to do based on being black and based on being queer and et cetera. So what I manifested was like, I need to find more community here so that I want to be here. <laughs> um, and kink out became that community for me. Um, I literally learned about kink out actually through my work in Berlin though, because I um, was shooting a horror porn I don't even know if that's, that's going to be the next thing that comes out. It's called Ruptured. I um, met um, a film director, Max Disgrace, um, who actually runs the London Porn Film Festival. And then he had, he asked me to shoot this film when I was in Berlin last, um, where then I met some people who were shooting from Aorta, who I'm also currently doing films with, um, that live in New York. And then through Aorta, I learned about the kink out community. And when I met Yen, who's the the head producer, Anna Dom, and a Shabari artist, um, they told me like, hey, we're doing this PS1 event um, called Spaces, and we're trying to develop a safer space within the museum for people to be creative in their sex life and BDSM life, and also give people um, the podium who haven't been able to talk about their specific fetish skills um, and also create a consent culture within this space. So we use the PS1 dome for this, this event. And this was, oh God, it feels so long ago now, but it was just <laughs> February this year. Um, February 9th, where we were able to, like I was able to be kind of a spank MC um, and talk about um, spanking 101 and the beauty of spanking. Um, and also talk about it in a therapeutic way, kind of like, um, Paida Lin, which is like this uh, spank, their Taiwanese spank. It's not even just spanking, it's like a body slapping. So spanking is kind of like body slapping. So I thought about it that way. Um, and I was able to teach that and have the whole audience do it. And then in essence, they also from there started to do more spank dating and spanking of each other. And <laughs> the whole dome became very spanky. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, this is what I remember. This is what I like, you know? Um, and that was really powerful um, experience. And then from there, I met more people within the community. And then I became part of the kink out production team. And then we did more work together. We're still doing work together. We're developing a sex workers museum. Mm -hmm. um, and within the Sex Workers Museum, um, we're creating a platform right now for people to be sexual artists and 
people that are going to get paid for their work on whether it's only fans work or um, also many other types of work, like the people who are working on the sex workers museums are sex workers that also are tech artists <laughs> and they're developing an app where, you know, sex workers can actually have encrypted material that's not um, being controlled by SESTA-FOSTA and earn it bills that they can always do mm. um, post with post themselves the way they would like within this platform. Um, so I think that that is something that um, is really progressive that I'm continuing here. And then the sex work, the sex workers project kind of came about because I was working with kink out on international horse day, which was June 2nd. Mm -hmm. um, we were supposed to do a takeover of times square, the initial thing, the initial plan, but we had to, because of the pandemic, um, instead do an online rally and through the online rally, RJ Thompson, who's the director of the sex workers project spoke, um, at the rally online. And I really liked what he was saying. And then I saw there was a job announcement for a director of communications and I went for it and I got it. Awesome. So the beauty of it too, is that I was in between nonprofit jobs because the jobs I had when I first came back were still very, they're social work based in the sense that they're like, oh, but you can't say that you've done sex work mm -hmm. or you have to hide this Instagram page and only talk about this page or, you know, like still very repressive. But this project, RJ is like, please talk about your sex work. Please speak from a sex worker's perspective mm -hmm. because most people in the sex work industry, um, in a nonprofit sex work industry are researchers or they were like, they lived in situations where they helped sex workers or something, but they were never coming from a sex worker perspective. So because RJ also was a full service sex worker and the director now, he was like, let's bring more of us on board. Let's hire sex workers as experts, especially when it comes to anti-human trafficking efforts. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, we can turn this um, rape culture into a consent-based culture by just changing the trajectory around how people view sex and sexuality. And mm -hmm. sex workers are the sex experts or experts in this field um, and should be hired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to do so instead of just being talked about in research and school programs. Um, and I, also I'm developing a doc series where we're able to talk about different aspects of sex work. And this is funded by somebody who was live was saved by a sex worker. Um, we have a funder who basically is like, if it wasn't for a sex worker, I would have committed suicide. Mm -hmm. I was lonely. I was isolated. I didn't have anyone. And this sex worker helped me out. So I want to donate to your organization to develop films that are documentary series about the lives of sex workers in a way that's humanizing. Mm -hmm. So the first one I'm, I'm doing is called Sexual Healing um, and Sex. And then in parenthesis, you all healing, because I want to talk about it from a sex and sexuality perspective with sex workers being the people that are going to give the advice. So this is kind of how I'm continuing to empower myself as a full person um, and not dumb myself down for any industry that, you know, is suffering from the nonprofit industrial complex here um, by being part of more of a progressive team of people. And it makes me more excited uh, about living in New York mm. well, and in the state. <laughs> yeah. Well, the States is lucky to have you. <laughs> 
and doing that work. That all sounds like really amazing work. And uh, we'll definitely stay in touch and promote all of it and link to it. And anything that you can share about your workshops, if you send me links, we'll feature it on our website and in the episode show notes. And yeah, thank you so much for your time and for, um, for all of your insights. It's really been an inspiring conversation. Well, thank you for doing Strippers and Sages. I think it's a really great title. And I definitely feel like also I was thinking also cross promotion. I was like, I should probably, I should post strippers and sages on our sites as the director of communications. (laughs) And I definitely, when this comes out, I'll definitely be posting it. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely appreciate that. Yeah. We'll release it on Tuesday. So I'll send you all of the media and, um, and yeah, good luck with your, your workshops this weekend. Definitely send me a link. I want to check them out and, uh, I will in good touch. Thank you. Thank you, Z. If this episode turned you on, consider dropping a five in the ratings, subscribing to the show, and sending it to a friend. You can help us build our audience this way, and we would be so grateful. Special thank you to Liliana Estes for editing this episode. Thank you, Casey Odesser and Sasha Carney for their rigorous research and preparation for these conversations, and to Ben Euphrat for his continued guidance on this show. Stay sexy, folks.